0: Got so caught up in the moment they almost forgot to come up here, you know. That's <laughs> well. Good morning, everybody, and thank you so much for being here today. And again, for those of you who are joining us online, we're so thankful that you're here to worship with us. I want to remind you that this uh, coming Thursday evening, we're going to be having three Christmas Eve services at three, four thirty, and six. If you are able to make the 3 o'clock or 6 o'clock service that would, I think, help us spread out a little bit so everybody's not coming to the same one. We're anticipating more at the 4.30. We'll, We'll see what happens there. Well, most of the world is at war. The Institute for Economics and Peace, they reported some findings back in 2016. And as of 2016, only 10 nations in the world were not at war. Over the past 10 years, 79 have become less peaceful. 100,000 deaths in battle is up from 20,000 in 2008, and the UN Refugee Agency said there are 57 million refugees, displaced people, and others who are of concern. We ache for peace, and we ache for peace on a global scale. We want freedom from war, from sickness, from elections, and all the things that we're dealing with right now. And yet, this is not the only kind of peace that we want. And I believe on a daily basis, we personally are dealing with a lot of conflict and a lot of anxiety. As a matter of fact, Forbes did a survey, and the question posed was, what do you want most in life? And number four on that list was peace. And one person responded and said, I have a lack of clarity about who I am and my purpose. Why am I here? The same article goes on to say that we long for peace desperately. Peace from noise, chatter, pressure, responsibilities. It says we also want peace from the thumping inside of our own heads. The conflicts and strain we inflict on ourselves every minute, to be better, stronger, smarter, prettier, thinner, better parents, better spouse. You fill in the blank. So the subject of peace is a big one, particularly here, I believe, at the end of 2020. And as we consider the scene 2,000 years ago, when a whole host of angels appeared in the sky, singing glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And I'm guessing that perhaps over the years you've seen your Christmases change, and if you haven't, you will. Circumstances beyond your control will change the way you do things. Could be from death, divorce, strained relationships, change in jobs. At some point you've probably been let down at Christmas. Even though in the scriptures it tell us that the prince of peace has come. The prince of peace has come. And not only do we look forward to an absence of war in the world, but the conflict inside of our own selves. What I want to talk about this morning is how do I join in God's peace? How do I join in God's peace? Again, we're going back in the Old Testament right now, looking at the Savior who was to come. This morning, we're going to be looking at Micah chapter 5, Micah chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. you would please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Micah 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel in the cheek. and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. You may be seated. It's been an interesting year, to say the least, and my prayer for our church is that we will be united and hopeful throughout the rest of this year and in 2021. This is the last morning of our four week series where we're going back and looking in the Old Testament at this promise of better days to come. The predictions that were made concerning the coming of Christ and the better days that were going to accompany him. And this morning I wanna look at this subject, this topic of peace, especially as it appears here in the book of Micah, Micah chapter five. And I'd like to do this. First of all, we'll talk about, well, what is peace? I mean, we talk about it a lot. Generally, it means a freedom of conflict, but it goes much, much deeper than that. And then we'll look at the peace that is promised in Micah chapter five, verses one through five. And then we'll see that peace comes. We've been singing about it already. In Luke chapter two, then John chapter 14. Then we'll talk about how do we join in God's peace. In the same way, there are joy killers There are peace killers out there that we need to address. So let's step into this passage. But first of all, I want to look at what is peace? Now, I know when I hear that word peace, for some reason I always always picture a dove in my head. I don't know why. But then I just kind of feel this, ah, peace. It's a feeling that I desperately want to have all the time. Nothing to worry or nothing to feel anxious about. The Hebrew term that is most often translated peace is this word, shalom. And that Hebrew word shalom goes beyond feelings. This is what God brings to us. It's God's peace. I want to start out by sharing a definition of peace. This is from a guy named Wayne Grudem. He's a theologian. He says, God's peace means that in God's being... And in his action, he is separate from all confusion and disorder. Yet he is continually active in innumerable, well-ordered, fully controlled, simultaneous actions. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? It means that he is above the fray that we call life, yet he is right in the middle of the fray that we call life. Even the world seems, even though it seems without order and completely chaotic, God is still doing trillions of things right in the middle of all of it. It's, it's, unfathom, it's unfathomable. So God brings peace to the world and it's available to the Christian. This is shalom. Shalom. And going further, the most basic meaning, again, is, is complete or whole. It actually can refer to a, a stone that doesn't have any cracks in it or, or any gaps in it or any gaps in mortar that's in a building. As a matter of fact, it refers to something large and complex with lots of different parts, yet all of them are working together in a harmonious unison. This is shalom. It's completeness. A shepherd in the Old Testament would refer to their tents being in Shalom if there weren't any sheep that were missing. The core refers to these parts working together. You can think of it like an airplane. You know, I used to work on airplanes. And they are made up of millions of tiny parts. Millions. And yet when they all come together, you've got this machine that can fly. And Yet not one single part can fly on its own. They have to all be doing exactly what they're made to do. By the way, this is also a reference to life. That the different parts of your life, your relationships, your family, your friendships, all these things are working together as they should, then you have shalom, you have peace. But when these things aren't working together, when we have relational breakdown, when there's a lack of forgiveness, then you can expect there to be a lack of peace. anything from death to hard feelings life is no longer whole and it's got to be restored and it's got to be brought back so in old times if your cattle would have torn down somebody else's fences you would have to take a gift to them and in that sense it would be said that you are shaloming them you were making it right you were bringing peace so it works this way in relationships when you reconcile or heal a broken relationship you're bringing shalom into that broken relationship. Start working together for somebody else's benefit. See, this is what the Israelite kings were supposed to have done. And they failed. As a matter of fact, they failed miserably at bringing Shalom to the land. Peace. It almost never happened. So now we find ourselves in this book of Micah. And we have this prophet who realizes that peace has been promised, and he needs to reiterate this to the people of Israel. So, this is the final prophet we're going to be looking at in our series. This prophet Micah. And like other prophets, he comes on the the, the scene with a, a common message. Uh, he's saying that, Israelites, you were made for better times than these. <clears throat> Similarly, like we looked at before, the the rich are exploiting the poor. They have enemies. And he's looking forward to what he's saying, a day of shalom or peace that will come. He refers to it as the day of the Lord. And he remembers this promise. And in this little book, he speaks of someone who's coming that's going to bring peace. And in in chapter 4, looking back in verse 3, he's looking at someone who judges between many peoples and will settle disputes for nations, strong nations, far and wide. And under this person's leadership that's coming, it says, we'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears and the pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. This is a picture of the deep and wide shalom that this person, the Messiah, is going to bring. And look at our text from today, starting there in verse 1. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. This is referring to Israel. Siege is laid on us, this is a reference to Babylon, with a rod they strike the judge of Israel in the cheek. That's looking at what happened to King Zedekiah. He was tortured by the king of Babylon. Then the text continues, verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, His coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. This is referring to Christ. Christ was born in Bethlehem. He was raised in Nazareth. Obscure little places that no one had ever heard of. I doubt that any of you have ever heard of a place called Petroleum, West Virginia. Or Muddlety, West Virginia. But that's where my parents were born. This was like the smallest, most insignificant place. And yet from this place was going to come this ruler from ancient days. This verse is recognizing that the one that was to come had eternally existed. There was never a time when Jesus was not. He was born at a particular point in time, only meaning that he put on humanity at a particular point in time. Jesus retains his humanity, but he has always existed. Again, there was never a time when Jesus was not. That's what this verse is saying right here. That that phrase, from ancient days, literally means uh, from days of immeasurable time. And then moving on, verse 3. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor is given birth, and the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, And then look at what it says, and he, he shall be their peace. Peace is coming and peace has come in the person of Jesus Christ. So that's what happened. Peace came. And what's so significant about the birth of Christ? In Luke 2, 14, the angel said, glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among people. In John 14, 27, Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's preparing them for his ultimate departure. He says, my peace I leave to you. See, Jesus made peace with God for us. And we have peace with God himself because of the work of Jesus Christ. He restored peace where there was brokenness with the one who created us. Paul said that Jesus has become our peace. He's the whole complete human that you and I have failed to be. He's given Us, life, is a gift. And we're now called to create peace, to make peace. That's not easy to do. Local churches are called to keep the unity of peace as the bond that ties us together, that takes humility, that takes patience, that takes bearing with each other with love. This isn't easy. And this is what we're called to. This is part of making peace. The life that Christ participated in was not an easy one, and it isn't that way with us either. And even the Prince of Peace wept when his friend died. But in Colossians 1, it says he made peace through the blood of the cross. So peace is not just the absence of conflict. True peace takes taking all the broken pieces and bringing them back together again in wholeness. Tim Keller, uh, he talks about the biblical concept of shalom. He says it's universal flourishing, wholeness, delight. He said God created the world to be a fabric for everything to be woven together and interdependent. Now, this is an interesting idea. He goes on to illustrate it. He says if I threw a few thousand threads onto a table, they wouldn't be a fabric. They'd just be threads laying on top of each other. Threads become a fabric when each one has been interwoven, inter and through each other, around and through everyone. The more interdependent they are, the more tightly they're woven together, the more beautiful they are, the more stronger and warmer they are. God made the world with billions of entities, but he didn't make them to be an accumulation. Rather, he made them to be in a beautiful, harmonious, knitted, webbed, interdependent relationship with one another. You think about that with the events of life, that God is actually, even though from our perspective it can be so ugly and so chaotic, from the perspective of God, the threads are coming together as he intends them to be. He goes on, talks about our calling and practice of shalom. This is where it fails. In large cities around the world, children are growing up as functional illiterates, largely due to school and family situations. By the time they become teenagers, they can't read or write. According to Keller, at that point, they're locked into poverty for the rest of their lives. Some people pin this problem on unjust social structures. Others blame the breakdown of the family, but nobody ever says it's the kid's fault. Nobody says that seven-year-olds need to pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And yet a child born into a family like this, has three to 400 times greater chance for economic or social flourishing. I'm sorry, a child born into a family that is not like this has three to 400 times greater chance for economic or social flourishing than the kids in those neighborhoods. This is one example of the tear in the fabric of peace, that we have children born into these kinds of situations. Which brings us to this question then, well then how do we join in God's peace? How do we join in God's peace? Last week, I talked about joy killers. Similarly, there are peace killers. As Christians, our three main enemies, as a matter of fact, our three only enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's who we're contending with. And the devil will always try to interrupt and take your peace. That is what he's trying to do. I believe there's two primary ways that he does this. I want to talk about the first one, and this is something that I've struggled with for quite some time for a while in my life, and that is the devil's an expert at causing you to doubt your salvation. That's one of his primary operating characteristics. He wants to think that you're not really saved. In his book called By Grace Alone, Sinclair Ferguson he identifies these four fiery darts that Satan throws at us and almost daily basis first they'll say God is against you he is not really for you how can you believe he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life don't ever think that your salvation hangs on somehow being in favorable circumstances um you know the apostles of Jesus Christ lived very short lives The ones who followed the physical Christ and were willing to be martyred for him. They didn't live long and prosperous lives as the world would describe it at all. But that is one dart that Satan's going to throw at you. Look at what's happening around you. If you were walking with the Lord, these things wouldn't be happening. No. Don't think that. Some Some of the most faithful Christians have fallen into the most difficult circumstances. And then number two, I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins, Satan argues. What can you say in defense? Nothing. Oh, he's an expert at reminding you of your sins. Things that you did 5, 10, 15, 30, 60, 70 years ago. And he's good at bringing those things up. But see, here's the thing. God knows your sins too. Well, actually... No, he doesn't. He's forgotten them. If you have accepted the forgiveness of Christ, he's done with them. <clears throat> now Satan will bring them up. But God has removed them as far as from, from you as the east is from the west, infinitely far away. Fiery dart number three. You can say you're forgiven, but there's a payback day coming condemnation day satan insinuates how will you defend yourself then for the christian there's not a payback day see jesus paid the penalty in full every bit god is not going to punish you for your sins because jesus is the one that took the punishment and then fiery dart number four, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? We've got some wonderful assurances of salvation in the scripture. <clears throat> Here's three. Everyone who believes on him will not perish, but have eternal life. John 3, it should be John three sixteen. actually, I apologize. The one who believes in the Son has eternal life. John 5:24 I assure you, anyone who believes has eternal life. John 6:47 See, there's tons of verses out there that assure you that your salvation is complete. See, God does the saving. You don't save yourself. The work is done on your behalf. You're just trusting in what's already been done for you. How do we undo something that we didn't do to begin with? We're just trusting in what someone else has done for us. When we share the gospel, we're just one beggar telling another beggar where they can find food. So pursue, join in God's peace, first of all, by pursuing assurance of your salvation. This is something you really struggle with. Talk to somebody about it. Talk to somebody about it. You can talk to me about it. Talk to one of our elders about it. You know the word Satan, the name Satan actually means accuser or prosecutor? that's what he likes to do. He wants to accuse you of your sins, things that God is not doing. One more quote from Keller. He says, for every one look you take at your sin, take five looks at your Savior. For every one look you take at your sin, take five looks at your Savior. Pursue assurance, and then secondly, be a peacemaker. Be a peacemaker. Three ways you can do that. First of all, uh, listen lovingly. Listen lovingly. It sounds so simple to do, but it's actually very challenging. If you are an active listener, it will wear you out. Okay? It means leaning in and, and, and letting someone know that you are listening to them. And by the way, if you're actively listening to someone, that means you're not just waiting for the person to finish so you can jump in there and say what you want to say. That's not active listening. Because you're just thinking about what you want to say, you're not thinking about what they're saying, my wife has caught me doing this a hundred times. It happens. It happens. It's making eye contact, leaning in. That's listening with love. And then secondly, rebuke with respect. Rebuke with respect. Thomas Trisna, he's an English professor, he talks about peacemakers this way, because rebuking someone doesn't always seem to lend itself to peace, but that's not the case. He says, peacemakers are honored insofar as they speak about peace as something already victoriously won that we can celebrate as part of our glorious past, or as something that we that will be won in the other world. They continue to be dishonored insofar as they continue to point out injustice, hypocrisy, and suffering. They are noble when their actions bring to light problems far away from us. They are an odious nuisance when they point out our own sins. Yes. Point out the sins of other Christians if they're not aware, but do it in a way that you would want someone to do it to you. Take into consideration timing and tone. And we all want to be treated with respect. Realizing that we're sinners ourselves. So rebuke with respect. And then finally, bless your enemies. Bless your enemies. And this is referring to someone who just flat out does not like you. Somebody that hates your guts. And In Matthew 5, it says, But I say to you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. This is why forgiveness and peace go hand in hand. You really cannot have one without the other. This is the ultimate step of peacemaking. So putting this all together enjoy and bring the peace of Christ. Enjoy and bring the peace of Christ. Remember that through this holiday season. I know that some of you are suffering and you're hurting and you desperately want the grief to pass that you're going through. Jesus knows that feeling as well. And on closing, I want to share something. Um, This is by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know who that was, he was a Lutheran priest. He was actually involved in an assassination attempt against... Hitler uh, during World War II. He was caught. Ultimately, he was was punished for that with his own life. And thinking about the peace of Christ, the peace that Christ brought, and the idea of spreading it, he said this. Jesus Christ lived in the midst of his enemies. At the end, all his disciples deserted him. On the cross, he was utterly alone, surrounded by evildoers and mockers. For this cause, he had come to bring peace to the enemies of God. So the Christian too belongs not in the seclusion of a cloistered life, but in the thick of foes. If you're feeling hurt, if you're feeling persecuted, if if sometimes you feel like the people that should love you most don't, that is to suffer in the same way that Jesus did, who came to bring peace. Please pray with me. Lord God, I pray that we would know the peace that you brought. Lord Jesus, you are ordering the world. Even though at times there are tears in the fabric, God, even through that you can weave a patch over it miraculously. And it becomes part of your ultimate plan. God, I pray for those who are hurting, especially this morning, who are on the the cusp of uh, a Christmas unlike the ones that have happened previously for any number of reasons, God. Lord, I pray that they would know your peace. I pray that you would show them a pathway out of anxiety. And God, I pray for our church. Lord, I'm so thankful for it. I'm so thankful for the blessings you have given us. God, I pray for that unity of the bond of peace. And we ask all in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.